0: Hello, this is the AskRigly podcast. I'm Dimitri Salomir.
1: And I'm Francesca Baker.
0: So, we are in a secret location that tried to advertise so much. So, the secret location is actually a British Library. And uh, happily, we're going to speak a little bit about the British Library itself, and we're going to talk about uh, libraries in general.
1: So, we're currently standing in front of, um, right in the centre of the British Library, there's this glorious kind of dark uh, column of books. Um, and the shelves kind of lined with lots of old and you know, kind of antique books and obviously the British Library it gets every single book published I think in the country um, so there's some, some pretty old stuff here like you know, Magna Carta, um, Jane Austen's original novels, some of Shakespeare's first videos
0: But obviously they, they're not all standing in this uh, big black <laughs> column of books, although it does look very very impressive, it's almost like the heart of the whole building underpins it and it books from wall to wall and floor to ceiling through I think what is it five floors um, so so it does look very 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 impressive and most of those books look like they're kind of from the 17th 18th century very
1: much so and I'm heartened because it's quite busy and you know it's a Friday afternoon it's really nice weather um, but there's still lots of people here and we you know library usage is decreasing but <laughs> it's not as dire as you seem to think. It's, that doesn't mean that people people aren't reading anymore.
0: Oh, wait, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. We're going to uh, talk about some numbers, I think, about, about how many books actually there, there are in Library.
1: So, yeah, they're not all in this column right in front of us, but British Library houses 150 million items and it gets another 3 million every single year. Those 3 million need another 12 kilometres of shelves. So it means that the British Library has 24.5 metre deep basements. Insane. That's
0: a lot, yeah. Um,
1: yeah, 150 million items, which means if you see five items every day, it'll take you roughly 80,000 years.
0: And, of course, we're also in the very heart of London. We're right next to King's Cross Station, so it's, uh, it's, it's very impressive when you can devote such a huge amount of space yeah. to, uh, to books, essentially.
1: Well, it, it is the largest public building built in the um, 20th century. So, it's, yeah, it's fantastic. a sizable place.
0: So we're going to leave that for a moment we're going to introduce our first story yes and uh, the story actually takes place in russia it's called dreams of siberia and it's by one of the long-standing struggle authors um uh, and he has a very interesting project i should kind of introduce mm-hmm. it before the story itself and the project is called migrate to the french uh, so you can have a look at it uh, it's it's on the web uh, migrator french.com i believe and um it's, it's a journalistic project, and he basically travels to uh, uh, various parts of the world. Usually, those are the ones that have experienced conflict fairly recently. So he's got uh, stories there about his travels to, uh, to the Balkans, for example, to the uh, uh, countries in uh, North Africa as well. So it, it's really quite interesting. He's trying to get inside story. He's trying to speak to people on the ground and, and sort of bring this very picturesque depictions of sketches. And you can art.
1: definitely hear that in this poem, like kind of people and place, very, very central to it. <laughs> Sorry, story even, yeah.
0: <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it's kind of personal experience uh, and personal stories of people that he meets on the way. And he kind of uh, shows everything from inside almost. So the next voice you're going to hear is going to be Eman Shihim.
2: Dreams in Siberia. The afternoons proved near impossible, trying to work in the taiga with the stifling heat. Walking along you would take in a deep breath of forest air and find your mouth consuming a ball of insect frenetics reaching down your throat. Then suddenly the the manic swarm would coarsely be dispelled by a wrenching cough. I started to cover my face after a while. The thickness of clouds, Siberian gnats, swarms of persistence egging at your nerves and raging at your sanity. We worked along the trail some more, but it was obvious our enthusiasm had run out. Less of the track was being cut away by each of us as time went on. We focused more on picking berries for our evening supper and fishing, than cutting away overgrowth. Misha, all geared up with headnets and thick clothing, shored up our efforts by using the chainsaw more and more. We were coming to an ebb and we were literally two days from the end of our trek In the little cabin I could still hear the buzzing Even though nightfall had quelled the swarms and the mosquito coils burned around us A searing noisy pitch continued to drill through my head They had left a permanent audio scar on my tormented ears The cabin was a cozy welcome from the body numbing nights sleeping in cold tints The little log burner in the corner spurned out warmth tainted with a strong, sticky wood aura. Tucked snug in our sleeping bags, we all laid together like silky chocolate rolls, warming slowly in an oven. And just like that, my mind started to wander, to the lucid. A brown rusted barrel on its side, at the top of a green field in Kerry. My grandparents standing at a little gateway to the side. Tufts of white hair on their heads, looking on with smiles. And the barrel would start rolling down with a small me inside, turning and turning as I grew giddy, smell of rust and summer grass as I rolled faster downhill. The bar would reach a speedy crescendo towards the end of the field, and the ditch would end it all with a kick, kicked into the soles of my feet, i was been nightshapes in the dark, awake, I'm stirred into the sober annoyance in the snoring cabin. I can hear a bird peck against the pole of a tree outside, woodpecker pecking in the middle of the night. I listened to the pattern and began to drift back down into slumber.
0: So that was Iman Chihi and you can probably hear by the noise we've, uh, in the meantime, we relocated outside, we're sitting just next to, uh, to the library. There's a lovely courtyard sort of uh, closed off on the main street.
1: where well, they're currently doing some work. Uh piece of art. Don't say that. No, but crossroads of curiosity, so I'm not moaning about the the building, but it just looks like there's something happening. And I guess that's what libraries are, really, like a sort of place of curiosity and exploration.
0: Oh, exactly. I I think now, especially even places like British Library, they're trying to reinvent themselves and uh, become a lot more than libraries. And uh, a lot of other libraries will have to do exactly the same and kind of open up and, and become... Co-working spaces and uh, sort of exhibitions and uh, kind of music, so almost bringing all these little things that uh, will ensure that people are coming every day, uh, because obviously physical books, where is all the digital kind of revolution are becoming less and less of a draw, but then it's still important to have that knowledge repository.
1: Definitely. I was looking at stats, um, and I think, like, library, the number of visitors to the library is down 12%. The number of books being borrowed was down 20%, and obviously it's awful, they're both declining. But I think that just shows that people are coming to the library and doing different things, and using sort of different resources.
0: It's not just that. Libraries have been closing as well. We've mm. lost over 300 libraries in the last five years in the UK alone. Anecdotally though, the usage of libraries in the States has gone up in the same period of time, and uh, that's probably to do with the crisis and people searching kind of for free Wi-Fi and, yeah. and, and places to, um, yeah, to work guess, and like the other things. The yeah, I guess the
1: recession can kind of take things two ways. Either everything closes because there's no public funds, or there's such a demand for it because personal funds are smaller and people don't have, you know, aren't paying for the Wi-Fi or can go and get a book kind of thing. Um, so in times when perhaps we really need them, it's a shame that they're closing.
0: Well, hopefully uh, they'll be able to sort of yeah. re- work out a new paradigm, kind of how, how this is all going to happen, where, whether it's going to become sort of large community centres which will combine all sorts of kind of unrelated things like James and cinemas and and co-working spaces. I mean, co-working spaces have been ballooning around London with all the uh, you know, young tech companies and startups. It's very much in demand and, and there's a lot of that. Uh happening, and, and it's quite expensive, let's, let's face it, uh, to, to find a place like this, yeah. so people are looking for a place where they have Wi-Fi, where they have space to meet other people, you know, to have meetings, business meetings, yeah. or personal meetings, and yeah, um, so. libraries can serve that. So. Yeah,
1: I think savvy libraries will kind of, yeah, get involved with doing different things, um, and obviously here, I mean, you know, it's a slightly different situation, I mean, the British Library rather than kind of your local library, but they have, you know, really good exhibitions, um, Kind of things running to i guess kind of show it's not just books they've got here it's all sorts of different parts of knowledge
0: so we're going to move on to our next uh, author Yeah. it's kind of bringing us back to the traveling thing kind of back to uh, to what eamon has started um, and uh, it's going to be a piece of poetry it's by marion edwards and to introduce marion will we should also tell a little bit about the uh, recent project that we did with uh, uh, Britain's next bestseller the a uh, young publisher. Um, so we teamed up to create this crime thriller competition. Uh, it's a competition for short stories. We were selecting stories to go into a book and um, kind of there's an overall winner. So Marion took a part in that and she wrote a brilliant story. Uh, I think it's fair to say one of my uh, sort of top, top picks. Um, And it did make the book, so it's going to appear, and you can find it uh, online, there's a crowdfunding project going on, it's closing in two weeks, I believe. So, um, there's still plenty of time to pre-order, and we certainly need support for it, so uh, please do take a look at it. So, the piece we're going to play today is very different, it's going to be a piece of poetry, and uh, it's called We Might Have Gone.
3: It was already ten when my blacksmith came to shoe the pony tied to the only street lamp in the barrio. Despite the sepia light, he peered at her feet, pulled her leg high, and sent the cracked bell of his hammer ringing through the night and along the street. Children circled round the dolphin curve of his back and her flank, dizzying moths, until mothers herded them to bed. Four feet later, he let the tools drop but remained bent. Studying the ground for stray nails, which cannot be left, not ready to straighten yet. Twenty minutes, I come back. He always said that. I sat to wait longer, sharing a beer with my neighbour who asked, what king of a horse does a blacksmith ride? Big and ugly, a good one, I replied. Knees heaving a sigh, I took up the bridle. My animal expected a feed, not the hard bit sidled into her mouth by a curious thumb. Despite the metal, her head and ears were drooping. The plan we were taken by the notion of a journey to the western coast. What a wilderness of pride to boast on first sight of the ocean. We would pirateer obscure hill farms, cleaving with machete and heaving pack-horse, these band and saddled ships of ours. We would pillage jungle streams and down oars to plunder berries. Brave cannons of thunder and volleys of rain, but in long sleeves, not daring to bear arms for insects racketing the canopies. One day we would pack up and leave. One day. First, though, we practised, clattering across tarmac while dogs asked, What time do you call this? Curtains twitched with the scandal of it. Then we hit dry mud paths, house-free and dark, thudding past the black trees, hearing everything. The mountain turned grey with the dawn of night vision, the generous horses shouldered forwards, and the temperature fell as we climbed up. Fused to our saddles, stumbling was just another rhythm. We cleared the forest and panoramas laid down for us. We had seen the city creeping up the hillsides, submerging the mountains in fickle electricity, at least the house lights below were like a slice of the heavens, a sky mirror with a dirty, yellower brilliance. Tiene sueño, he asked, muscling out my reverie. It means, are you tired? But sueño is also dream. Lightning broke the night, with a moment of day like an advert for God. "See sí, muchos, I said. The ride was enough. Looking back at that rogue flash of day again before his divorce crumbled into lives, before I proved to be just fine without him. Djenni's sueño was, let's go. He was right. We might have chanced the journey there and then.
1: So that was Marion Edwards. Um, she's a writer. She writes all sorts of things, uh, not just poetry and literature, but also writes for radio and TV. Um, she does lots of writing, like blogging about science, um, which I think just kind of shows like the the breadth of talent and stuff that is on the Scriggler and kind of the different ways of, yeah, of articulating it's it. It's also itself. in a
0: way the sort of versatility that is required now from yeah. modern writers. You kind of have to try all these little different angles and see where, uh, where you're going to become more successful. It's, you know, it's yeah, quite definitely. difficult to find what's going to work.
1: And to kind of be the jack of all trades but hopefully master of at least, at least one of them.
0: So we're going to continue with poetry again, and uh, the, next, uh, the next author is Duncan Green. Duncan um, performed for us at one of these Grigal lives. Uh, it's been a privilege to see him live. It, it's very, very powerful. He has a very, almost overwhelming delivery. Uh, his personality really shines on stage. And I think
1: it's very intense, but also very, very vulnerable. The kind of things he writes about really kind of exposes himself and his feelings and his life. But, um, yeah, so both kind of powerful, but also sort of frail at the it's same time. It's very genuine, basically. Yeah. yeah that, that's kind of the thing.
0: And the, the poem he's going to read is is, is it's, it's his kind of title poem. It's very autobiographical and, and, and yeah. Like um, if he had
1: like a, if he was a graffiti artist, a tag this would be his tag. I like feel.
0: I suppose so. Yes. Yeah. 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 So he has a YouTube channel. Uh, you can see him perform it live. He Usually performs it uh, bare chest, so It's quite mm. uh, um, it's quite important for the poem itself. So and you'll see why in a minute.
4: You've seen Dunk in the changing room. You can put your hand round his bicep, I swear he's fucking anorexic. Ribs on show like a xylophone, he looks like a starving Ethiopian. Makes me sick. Do you think he eats? Don't look like it. Kev tells me he spends most lunch times watching his friends eat their pat lunches. You mean he has money, but he never goes to the canteen? Weirdo. How can you go all day without getting the munchies? Oh, you ever see him play volleyball? His wrists are like about to snap. It's like his old body groans. <laughs> Oh, have yeah, you what they're calling him? It's brilliant. They started calling him Bones. Oh, look, wait, here he comes. Check this out. Oi, Bones, 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 you skinny twat. You're a weak skeleton. Fucking joke. What you got to say about that? Stop picking on me. Duncan, listen, I, I think we should just be friends. You're a nice guy, but I don't see anything with you. This relationship should end. Yeah, we can stay in touch, but I'm going to be busy. I'm studying all the time. Oh, don't be like that. You don't need me. You'll be fine. What? Do I find you attractive? What do you care? Just accept that we're three. Please, stop asking me that. Stop. Oh, for God's sake, of course I'd never have sex with you. You look ill. Your legs are thinner than mine. You're all bone. You're like a child, constantly craving my attention. I need my space. Please, just leave me alone. OK? Don't I get a say in this? Mr Green? Take a seat, I have your results. I think you'll be pleased. The biopsies confirm you have celiac disease. I'm sorry you had to eat three slices of bread every day for the last two months, but we had to be sure. With a gluten-free diet, these troublesome symptoms shouldn't bother you anymore. You'll come to see a dietitian every month. They'll advise you on what to eat and monitor your weight. You'll come back to me in six months for a gastroscopy to check your stomach is healed properly. Any questions? Oh, wait, I'm afraid I don't have enough time to go through it with you now. Speak to your GP. Next time I see you, you won't be able to fit through that door. You'll be bigger than me. I don't understand any of this. Hi, darling. How are you doing? Yeah, we're fine. Your stepdad's got back into his art. It's going great. How are you feeling? You doing well? Are you putting on weight? Listen, I love you, it's just you were diagnosed with celiac disease four years ago now and you haven't put on any weight. You, well, you look like you've lost more. I don't know how that's possible unless... Well, Duncan, honestly, I think you may have an eating disorder. I want you to tell me what you eat. Text me your meals every day. We'll get through this together. Put my mind at ease. It's the only way. Is it? Muscles. Look at you struggling with those bowels. How'd you get a job behind the bar? You don't know me. We got you all this gluten-free food and you didn't eat it. We're just trying to help. Let me speak. Bones! 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 Shut up. Mr Green, you you haven't put on any weight in the last three months. If this continues, you'll be admitted to hospital for feeding. Shut the fuck up. I'm tired of being judged for being underweight, people probing constantly to fix me, sitting quietly whilst politely listening to experts tell me results were inconclusive and to come back in six months, then we'll see. The reality is I was an insecure child who neglected his independence for the company of others who sat starving whilst his friends ate because he didn't want to leave them for the canteen but never told his mother, who binge ate sweets from the garage on the way home a sugar obsession that ruined his dinner every fucking day. The joke is I now realise I had celiac disease at least 25 years so breads, spread sweets Crisp pasta—it was all poison anyway. And as muscle failed to materialise, inside insecurity was reflected on the outside. Rejection from women, concern from family, anxiety and worry dominating my masculine pride. While well, as I get older, I realise this whole situation started with me sacrificing my own voice, embracing false friendships, deadbeat jobs, being mummy's six-year-old boy because I told myself I didn't have a choice. Well, I may be skinny my whole life, but what will be will be. And I'm tired of having to convince people I'm alright because that's not what they think they see. This is me. I'm more than a celiac, more than bones. They're just names. Terms to pigeonhole me, put me down, conform to the views of others. They mean nothing to me. I have a damn name. It's Duncan James Green. Thank you very much for this
1: So that was Duncan Green, um, and as you all have heard, and as i kind of said before, it's really powerful and kind of emotive reading. Um, I did an interview with him ahead of Squiggler Live, uh, one of the events, and just this kind of asking a little bit about why he writes, and he was just saying how he just can't not, basically. Um, it's really part of him. It's, um, he has to create in order to be real, and I think he's the life source, so that's just really kind of who he is. Um, and yeah, I guess it's going to be, so that's onScriggler.com and just direct you to go and find, you can find out a bit more about some of the authors on there, um, on the platform and kind of why they write, how they write, what makes them write. Um, so it's another kind of aspect to go and investigate.
0: So this brings us to the uh, end of today's podcast. We're going to play you one last story. It's by H.O. younger And unfortunately, we don't have enough time to play the whole thing.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um... So we're gonna play the first half and you'll have to wait for the conclusion for, for the next one. So oh, it's like
1: a soap opera. It's like El Dorado. Do <laughs> you remember El Dorado?
0: Well, I certainly wouldn't describe what he's writing as no, soap opera. No, no, no. Uh, but uh, he's a very interesting writer. He's got a book out. It's, um, it's tough. Yes, it, uh, Yes, that, that's true. Um, there's one in particular that there are few expo- uh, excerpts on, on Skrigler. No, it's it's a fantasy genre. It's very imaginative i was very impressed by it kind of when it first uh, came out there uh, i certainly would recommend anyone to to go and check it out i'm it's i have to confess it's still on my to read list but it's uh, <laughs> kind of very very
1: close
0: to the top of the pile but yes that, that that's true um, this particular story is called the Counts. it's a very uh, Dark one.
1: I'd just like to point out it's just starting to rain. Like, I feel like as we're coming to the end, we've got this like dark story. I feel like this is quite apt. <laughs> uh,
0: but this is H.O. the Younger uh, with The Accounts, and we're going to tell you more about it after the second half in the next podcast. Yeah, stay tuned. So, thanks very much for listening, and we'll uh, see you next time.
1: Thank you. Bye bye. The
5: Accounts. The Accounts of My Life. Are not easy ones to tell. Even more so, at times they are not easy to hear. Even my earliest memory is one of darkness and fear, not like those of my fellow men who seem to recall theirs with apparent ease and joy. No, the story of my Genesis does not bring the same feelings of delight and nostalgia to mind. I'm not quite sure how old I was in my first memory but I had already acquired the skill to walk and talk, albeit with the clumsy tendencies of a child. My entire world new and exciting to my awakening and developing senses, senses that were now experiencing a frightening cacophony of shadowy stimuli. The only bit of safety I remember from this memory Is the hand that clutched mine, pulling me ever deeper and deeper into the forest of black. The hand belonged to a woman, a woman whose face I do not recall all too well anymore. But I remember the feelings I felt towards her, if not my mother, at least some sort of caregiver, someone with whom I felt safe at that moment. These feelings that told me my caregiver would protect me were the only things keeping me from crying in fear. The images I remember are enough to make even the bravest of men quiver with fear, not even to speak of the little boy I was back then. The giant trees we passed each loomed over me as dark sentinel guardians of the frightening place, sounds of unknown creatures. Or as I fought back then, monsters, sounded out of the shadowy distance, not betraying their true position. As the fist of fear closed around my heart, my hand followed suit, and closed tighter around that of my caregivers. To my everlasting dismay, my caregiver gave her first sign of her true intention. For as my grip tightened on hers, I felt her grip slacken. Even as a child, I could sense and fear the iniquitous intent of my caregiver. I remember trying to speak to the one who led me by my hand. Exactly what words I had said I cannot remember, for they are lost to me beneath the blanket of fear and dread I felt at that moment. She never answered. But sometimes I imagine a small snicker from out the shadows of her veil. It felt like hours that we moved in absolute silence through this den of shadowed demons that I was sure were there. I still remember the question that ran through my head over and over that night. Where are you taking me? And why must we pass Through here, where all that is dark and evil must reside. I don't think I ever voiced this question aloud. I didn't expect an answer. For deep down, I knew what was coming. My young legs wanted to give way beneath me as we finally slowed down. The area my caregiver was looking for finally found. I shivered from both the cold and the fear as we slowly approached what must have been the tallest and thickest of all the trees in that forest. The haunting light from beneath it chased away the shadows that covered the rest of the forest. Was this what she wanted me to see? I thought as I edged nearer to the tree, her hand still tightly clutched in mine. The tree was growing on the very edge of a cliff, I realized with a start, as I saw the sudden drop and the mirror-like surface of the lake below. The beauty of the glass-like water reflecting the silver light of the full moon drove all considerations of fear from my mind, and my grip lessened on my caregiver's hand. I knew it would happen before it did. The second my grip was lessened, my caregiver plucked her hand free from mine with a swift motion. I never had a chance to stare questioningly at her, for the next moment I felt the push from the very hand that had just vacated mine. It was like an eternity passing in a second as I fell from that cliff and broke the pristine surface of the lake. Ice seemed to replace the air in my lungs as I sank down into the black depths of the lake. Perennial waves of pain spread through my body with every breath I tried to take. I am not sure whether I had swam before this moment, however, whether by instinct or experience, my arms and legs began to propel me to the surface of the lake. There was no singular instant wherein I had decided to fight for my life, there was only me doing it. It felt like it could have died three times over in the time it took me to finally reach the shore of the lake. My body seemed to feel the same way, as it immediately crumbled beneath me when my feet found the muddy ground. I coughed as the water vacated my lungs to make way for the air to once again take its place. The unforgiving cold beat against my wet clothes, plastered to my shivering skin instinct, I think, made me react at that moment, as I tore my clothes from my body, the fabric already struggling to relinquish my skin. I have no idea what spurred me to action next. Very little of that moment can be recalled clearly. However, one thing I do remember. It is probably the clearest memory I have of that night, if not the clearest of my entire life. For one second, I stared back up at that left, to where my caregiver still stood. She knew I had survived. She had seen me get out of the lake. Yet, she showed no sign of caring or hastening to retrieve me. It was then that the horrible realization dawned upon me. The one who had been charged to take care of me had now attempted to kill me. To this day, I recall this moment with absolute clarity. I can even recall the emotions I felt so clearly that when recalled, they still bring a tear to my eyes. But what I can't seem to remember about this moment is the thoughts that must have raced through my prepubescent mind, the thoughts that must have led me to my next action. I ran from that spot with such fervour and haste, almost as if I feared the lake would attempt to retake me if I did not flee fast enough, as if the thought of seeing my caretaker turn and leave would completely destroy me. I ran with the mad desire of an animal that night, my vision completely obscured by the unbidden tears that filled my eyes. Yet, I did not allow my lack of vision to postpone my flight. I could not have stopped myself at that moment, even if I had tried. It's a maddening picture. The completely naked child, running madly through the pitch-black, frightening forest in the middle of the winter, branches cutting at my face and body, while stones dug into my soft feet. My mad sprint nowhere was finally brought to a halt, as my feet found a root or branch that caused my body to find the forest floor. My tiny body hit the leaf-strewn ground with a loud thud, momentum causing my body to roll forward a few more paces before finally coming to a full stop. I did not bother getting back up to continue my flight, for I knew full well that I actually had nowhere to go to. No one whose arms I could run into No one to kiss my wounds and tell me it was all going to be all right. So there I lay, curled into a ball, and I wept. I wept and shivered from the cold until sleep finally gave me some momentary reprise from the horror that was now my life.